the greatest traitor of all time, the most well-known defector, the most infinite or infamous turncoat? I don't want you to give me an answer yet. (laughs) Because it's interesting, when you go to the lists that are often produced, they're usually quite similar. For instance, uh, you've got the name of Benedict Arnold. That's well known. In America, he was the famous general who accomplished many great feats in the Revolutionary War, a close friend of Washington. And because he didn't feel he was honored for his military deeds, he changed coats from the blue to the red. Uh, He betrayed his close friend Washington. He tried to give up the uh, West Point military uh, complex to the British, and he escaped capture and began to fight for the British, and so Benedict Arnold is one of them. You would also see the name on most of those lists of Marcus Brutus. In Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, he has him saying that uh, famous statement, et tu, Brute, which means, even you, Brutus? As Brutus is killing his once close friend, Julius Caesar, and that phrase, et tu, Brute, refers to someone expressing surprise and dismay at someone who once was a close friend and now has turned to be your enemy. On the list, I found some people that I was not too familiar with, like Mur Jafar who in the 1750s made a deal with the British East India Company and basically gave up the Bengali army, which allowed the British uh, to have a conquest of all of India and control them. And and his name is hated and deriled about as much as Benedict Arnold's name is in our own country. Marshal Patton, who gave up France as he worked with Hitler, I found it interesting that Tokyo Rose was on a lot of those lists. And for those of you who remember World War II, the sultry voice of propaganda and psychological warfare who tried to turn the GIs uh, away from their cause and discourage those who were fighting. But I've never seen on any of the lists the name of Ahithophel. You say, who in the world is Ahithophel? Well, Ahithophel was King David's most trusted counselor when David was king of Israel. Ahithophel was his closest friend. In fact, David said that the wisdom of Ahithophel is like the voice of God. And when David's son Absalom tried to overthrow his father and take the throne of Israel, Ahithophel became a traitor. And he began began to give his counsel to Absalom. So David prayed, may the voice of Ahithophel give counsel of foolishness. And indeed, that's what happened. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 16 and 17. Absalom didn't take one day the counsel of Ahithophel. So the Bible tells us that Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed He went home, put his house in order, and then hanged himself. And how did King David respond to this disloyalty of a close friend? Well, he put out his emotions, still yet tender, into a song. 
And the song is Psalm 41, verse 9. And in that song he said, My closest friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And that, my friend, is the very verse that Jesus quoted on the night Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Who is the greatest betrayer? Yeah, Judas. By the way, he's on every list of betrayers and usually is mentioned first. Why? Because he was such a close friend with the one he betrayed and because of the person he betrayed who was the greatest person who ever lived. And that's the story we read in Mark chapter 14. Let me encourage you to open up your Bibles to Mark 14 and verse 10. We read, then Judas Iscariot, this is right after Mary anointed the head and feet of Jesus with very expensive perfume to show her love and devotion. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. Betray Jesus. That's why he is the most notorious traitor of all. Verse 11 says, they were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas is an interesting guy. This picture of Judas, I think, perhaps is even uh, more accurate than the first one. The first one I showed you made him look very, not only uh, deceitful, but almost demonic. And we get the idea that there must have been something weird about Judas all the time. But this picture shows him to be rather decent at first. Maybe even respectable and admired. The name Iscariot simply means that he came from a village called Carioth. And there's two possibilities. One in the southern land of Idumea and another in the land of Moab. We're not exactly sure, but he was a, a man from the city. Not from the fishing villages like most of the other disciples. Not a Galilean. The name Judah is the root of Judas. And Judah means praise. And it was one of the most popular names that any parent could give their child. Judah. It's the tribe from which our Savior comes. And notice in verse 10, he was counted as one of the twelve. Which means he starts out well. He's chosen among the most interesting group of people who have the most outstanding privilege in all the world to live their life with Jesus Christ day in and day out. A German poet said that Judas had every gift one could desire and every virtue to make him great. I think he was quite an accomplished person. You say, but yeah, every time the disciples are mentioned, the list of disciples given in the Gospels, Judas is always mentioned last. That's true, but that was after he betrayed Christ. Word on the street and among even the disciples was the fact that this guy's pretty great. He performed all the ministries that all the other apostles performed. Did you ever think of this? Judas preached the Gospel. Judas healed the sick. Judas 
gave gifts to the poor. He did all the good works all the others did. And he was so respectable that they chose him to be the treasurer of the twelve. It's interesting that this group gathered money and the money then was given to the poor. That was part of their ministry. And they said, who among the twelve is the most accomplished with money and perhaps the most trustworthy? Let's choose Judas. And so John chapter 13 merely says that Judas was the keeper of the bag and he was in charge of the fund. A.W. Tozer said, Judas Iscariot was not a greatly wicked person, just a common money lover. And like the rest of the money lovers, he really didn't, didn't understand who Jesus was and what Jesus came to accomplish. You say, but yeah, he was ambitious and he was covetous. He wanted position and power and he was jealous when he didn't get it. Well, now you're talking about all 12 of the disciples. And you're talking about a lot of Christians who name the name of Christ today. I mean, starting out, Judas could have been any one of us, at least by way of appearance. And he fooled everyone. Here's the thing, Judas fooled everybody. At the very end, during the supper... When Jesus said to Judas, and it must have been a whisper, what you're going to do, do quickly, he got up and left, and still at that point, all the disciples thought he was merely going to give money to the poor. He fooled them right until the end. When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they didn't say, yeah, I knew it, I know who the guy is, right over there. They didn't know. He fooled everyone, except Christ. Because Jesus wasn't surprised. He knew from the very beginning. John chapter 6 and verse 64. Jesus from the beginning knew which one of them did not believe and who would betray him. John chapter 2 and verse 24. Jesus knew all men. And soon the treasurer became a thief. And the one who started well, perhaps with goals that were noble, and a desire for God's kingdom to come to earth, but, but also with ambition for position and power and, and maybe wealth that would come along with position and power. And Well, someone said, perhaps Judas was the first one to see that the dreams of the kingdom had no chance of any earthly fulfillment. Perhaps he was one of the first one to see his American dream dashed to the ground. You say it wasn't an American dream. I know that, but I'm trying to say just like us, living for the dream, and when the dream is not going to be fulfilled, our disillusionment causes the love we once held for someone to turn to hatred, to despair, and betrayal. Embezzlement first. And then betrayal next. Look at verse 11. They promised to give him money. I like what Matthew says in chapter 26, verse 15. 
Judas went to them and he said, hey, how much are you willing to give me if I hand him over? And he bartered. He drove a hard bargain. They might have said 15. He said, that's not enough. It's got to be more. How about 20? I want more. How about 30? Okay. The 30 pieces of silver. It's amazing what love for the things of this world will cause you to do even to the Son of God himself, to the people you love. And he soon yielded to sin. He became mastered by sin. When you yield to sin, sin soon masters you, right? John chapter 8, whoever commits sin is a servant to sin. You're its slave, it masters you. You commit a little sin, you think you're in control, and you appear to be. You say, I can stop this anytime I want. And then like a drug addiction, the sin has you, and there's nowhere you can go, and you are in bondage. And when the sin says jump, you jump. Sin deceives at first, and then it hardens, and then we ignore whatever grace God extends with a hard heart because of our own willful sin. It's interesting, in John chapter 13, it says that the devil prompted Judas to betray him, but then we read at the end of the chapter that the devil entered Judas to accomplish the wicked act. And so Judas was a person dominated by sin and living for self. Not a whole lot different than a lot of us today, which is scary. Look at verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And so Jesus sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat my Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and they found everything just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Interesting situation. Again, understand the context. Thousands of pilgrims have come into the city of Jerusalem with at least an attendance of 250,000, maybe approaching even a couple million people. The Romans are on heightened alert, fearing some kind of revolt, some kind of uprising, and Jesus is on the most wanted list. Look at verse 10. He already has a price on his head. In John's gospel, we read these words. The chief priests, the Pharisees, had given orders that if anyone found where Jesus was, they should report it so that he might be arrested. The life of Jesus was in grave danger. Thus, in these preparations, there seems to be a little bit of secrecy. It seems like something even prearranged. You see, Jesus was looking for a private place to have the Passover, which was going to be his last supper with his disciples. He wasn't afraid of what 
anyone was going to do to him, but he wanted to avoid detection so he could find a place to deliver to his 12 disciples the last and most intimate of his teaching. And you'll read it in John chapter 14 all the way through chapter 16. We call it the Upper Room Discourse. And it ends with the great high priestly prayer in John 17. What a final, amazing final message to give to his followers. In fact, we read in Luke 22, Jesus said, I eagerly desire to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. And so this was all prearranged. Go into the city. Why did they do that? Well, the Passover had to be eaten by every male Jew within the city limits. And the Passover service usually went all night until after midnight. So Jesus didn't stay out in Bethany where Mary anointed him. He had to go into the city, and so this was prearranged. A friend had all set it up. And by the way, it was a large house that had an upper room, stairs on the outside so that guests could live upstairs and not bother uh, the main owners who lived downstairs. And many Bible scholars believe that this upper room house is the same place where the disciples are praying in Acts chapter 1, and the same place where Peter flees to, where the church meets in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. And if that is true, it's inconclusive, but if that is true, the upper room is where Mark lives. It's the home of John Mark, who writes the Gospel of Mark. And the guy with the water pot is John's Father, who apparently is off the scene by Acts chapter 12. Why was this such a significant sign? Because you don't see men carrying water pots. Only women carry water pots. The men carry water skins on the side. And it was the ladies who carried a water pot. So if you saw a guy carrying a water pot, you'd say, wow, that's odd. I tried to think of a modern analogy, a man wearing a skirt in the city, but I thought, you know, no, that wouldn't be so weird today in some places. But whatever it was, it was unusual, and it drew the people's attention. Find that guy, follow him. When you enter the house, say to the owner, where can we have the Passover? And there's a place all prepared for us. And it all happened just as Jesus had said. Verse 17, when evening came, which is the first part of Friday, the day Jesus would be crucified, Jesus arrived with the twelve, and while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely not I. It is one of the twelve. He replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man must go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better if he had not been born. And now we see in contrast to Judas, Jesus. And we're told that he was troubled in spirit. This comes out of John's Gospel, chapter 13. He was troubled in spirit. When he later gets to the garden, 
he will be troubled in spirit and grieved in soul. Not so much because of the the difficulty that he would face, but because he knew that someone would betray him and he knew his disciples later on would flee from him and abandon him. And he knew that he would have to be even abandoned by God the Father when he became a sin offering for us. And his soul was deeply troubled. According to Mark chapter 10, earlier in our study, Jesus already said that he was going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man would be betrayed to the chief priests. That's Mark 10, 33. And so now what he predicted would actually be fulfilled. What did he do? Well, Mark, again, gives us a condensed account. He doesn't tell us all that was going on, but John adds the fact that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, which was a great act of love. Although troubled deeply, he is loving his disciples to the end. John 13, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love, or he loved them to the very end. And that, my friend, includes Judas. He washed the disciples' feet, including Judas expressing his great love. And then he said, you are all clean, but not every one of you. He said this because he knew who was going to betray him. That's John 13, verse 11. And this was simply another opportunity, a loving appeal given to Judas that there is still time for you to turn. It was a loving gesture and a kind invitation Once again, rejected. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they said, surely not I. They were saddened, verse 19. And one by one they said, it's not me, surely not me, surely not me. Did Judas say that? Well, Mark chapter 26, verse 25 makes it clear. Judas said, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus, apparently whispering to him, said, it's you. What I noticed in studying the different gospel accounts of this Last Supper is that apparently Judas was given a seat of honor just to the left of Jesus, and John, the apostle that Jesus loved, was on his right. It was a formal meal, and we're told in Mark that they were reclining, verse 18, which meant that Jesus, his head, was leaning on the heart of Judas. And it could have easily whispered to him. John then would have been leaning on Jesus' breast. And he's the one who said to Jesus, Who is it, Lord? And Jesus said, The one who dips, the one that I give this bread to, when I dip it in the bowl and give it to him, he's the one. And then he gave it to Judas. In the midst of this situation, Jesus had hidden the identity of his betrayer, although he knew it, hoping, willingly, offering repentance, offering forgiveness up to the very end. He wanted to give Judas every opportunity to turn. But deceit once hardened and hardened more often continues to reject all the offers of God. 
And you talk about treachery. To me, to eat a meal with someone meant that you had opened yourself up to them as a close friend. There was mutual commitment and trust. Then to betray your host was one of the most terrible acts of treachery imaginable. And then if your host is the perfect son of God, well, that makes you the greatest traitor of all time. And Mark is trying to dramatize for us the very fact that the traitor came from the company of those who knew him well. And Judas is not the only one who betrays Jesus. There are many others who follow in his train. And this is when Jesus quoted the story of David and Ahithophel. We read in John chapter 13 that Jesus quoted, but this was to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus said to his disciples, who is the greatest traitor who has ever lived? And probably most of the disciples would have not said Benedict Arnold. They would have not said Judas. They would have said Hithophel. What he did to David was unthinkable. And Jesus says, yeah, what David said about Hithophel in his song, Psalm 41, what's happening right now fulfills that scripture and that prophecy. By the way, what happened to Ahithophel? He went out and hanged himself just like Judas is going to do. But in contrast to Judas, you've got Jesus, who is yielded to the Scripture. He is mastered and governed by God. He is not led away by sin. He is not motivated by selfish independence. He is governed by the Scriptures. In John chapter 13, what is happening here is to happen what was written in the Scriptures. And notice in verse 21, Jesus says, yes, according to the scriptures, this betrayal must happen. His whole life was governed by God and his word. What an amazing example for us. It is written. It is written. Jesus believed the word of God to be true. And by the way, this is one of the greatest examples for us in all scripture because Jesus believed that the Bible was true, and he lived his life accordingly. And you and I should do the same. We have no higher testimony, no greater recommendation than the Son of God himself. It is written, it is written, this must be fulfilled. Jesus based his life on the word, and you and I should do the very same thing. So you've got these two people. Here's a picture of Judas betraying Jesus. All of these pictures come from that very accurate, in many ways, movie, The Passion of the Christ. Probably hesitant, somewhat fearful. Some see him angry and vindictive. But what's he like? Judas, he's the person who's dominated by sin 
and selfishness. Who makes his decisions in life based on what he wants and not what God has revealed. He yielded to, to sin and sin mastered him. By the way, some people think Judas was a hero. Verse 21 tells us the Son of Man must go this way. Someone must betray him. And so Judas is a hero. Someone had to do it, and he volunteered to be the bad guy so that we would have a Savior, and Judas is a hero. <laughs> oh, my friend, he's not the hero. He's an example of a man who loved sin so much that his heart became hard, and he rejected all the wonderful loving appeals and the grace of God. Nor was he a victim. Some people see Judas as a victim of Merciless predestination. I mean, God chose Judas. He's the son of perdition, and he doesn't have a chance. Well, I would remind you that those statements made about Judas are like the statements made about Pharaoh, that first of all, there was the hardening of the heart. And there was the rejecting of God's grace, which God knew would happen. Woe unto him who betrays the Son of Man. He must be betrayed, but woe to the man who does it. It was his choice. And Judas is lost for the very same reason that millions of people are lost today. It's because they will not repent of their sin, and they will not embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And John 13, verse 30, says, When Jesus said to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. He got up and left, and the scripture says, and it was night. Remember that verse? And it was night. Not only outside, but inside. It was dark in the evening, past midnight, and it was dark in the soul. Because every soul without the light of life is dark, is void and empty, And Warren Worsby was right when he said, if you have never been born again, one day you will wish you were never born. Not just Judas, but every soul that rejects Christ. Now, in contrast to Judas is the person of Jesus Christ who's governed by God in the Scriptures, by God in His Word. You make the choice. Are you going to follow God or follow self? And God in mercy has sent his son to be your savior and his word to be your guide and you must choose this day whom you will serve. And if you think you can handle sin, remember the life of Judas. I'm told that in the days of vaudeville there was an act that people just loved. He was a a young man, when the act started, and he had a pet snake, I think it was a boa constrictor, that he had trained. He would walk out to the stage in vaudeville, and he would whistle and make a sound, and the snake would slither from off stage and wrap himself around the young man, and the crowd would ooh and ah, and then he'd make another sound, and the snake would uncoil and work his way back off stage, and the crowds would cheer. And the young man did this for years until he became an older man and the snake grew to be much more powerful and stronger. And one night in a 
in an act. They did what they had done hundreds of times before. He whistled and the snake came and coiled himself around the man. But then the snake didn't stop coiling. It continued to coil and got tighter and tighter and he couldn't make a noise. The audience said you could even hear bones beginning to break. His lifeless body fell to the stage and everyone thought it was part of the act and they cheered. Until they finally realized it wasn't and they pulled him off the stage. He had died. The snake, when it was small, was something he could control, he thought. And then the snake grew larger until it killed him. Which is an apt illustration of what happens when we say, I can handle that sin and I don't need Jesus. I'm doing fine by myself until sin coils around our body and takes us, soul and all. And that is the story of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning to understand that there is a choice to be made. A choice to be made by your grace and mercy. And if we reject you, our hearts become hard and one day, There may be no desire to repent and no desire to turn to you. Help us, Lord, this morning to help us see that we should not play with sin, but yield ourselves to the Savior so that we might enjoy life that never ends. We pray in his name.